Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In celebration of the recent gift of Andrew Wyeth's Wind from the Sea, 1947, one of the artist's most important paintings, the National Gallery of Art presents an exhibition focused on Wyeth's first full realization in tempera of the window as a recurring subject in his art. Andrew Wyeth, Looking Out, Looking In, presents some 60 watercolors, drawings, and tempera paintings completed after Wind from the Sea. In honor of the exhibition, opening on May 4, 2014, curators Nancy K. Anderson and Charles Brock discuss Wyeth's fascination with windows. During his long and productive career, the artist created more than 300 remarkable works that explore the formal and conceptual aspects of looking both in and out of windows. Spare, elegant, and abstract, these paintings are free of the narrative element inevitably associated with Wyeth's better-known figural compositions. In the exhibition, works are grouped in suites of related images, illustrating the disciplined process of reduction and simplification that Wyeth consistently used in creating his window paintings. The resulting images are often rigorous in their formal construction, but deeply personal in subject. The exhibition, organized by the National Gallery of Art, will be on view only in Washington through November 30, 2014. Good afternoon and welcome. Thank you all for coming inside on this incredibly beautiful day to sit in the dark. We appreciate it. I'm Nancy Anderson. I'm curator of American and British Painting here at the National Gallery. And with me today is my colleague, Charlie Brock, also a curator in the American and British Painting Department. We were partners on the Andrew Wyeth Project. So we're going to tag team today. I'll speak for the first um, half of the program and then turn it over to Charlie. A couple of things that uh, we'd like to share with you about how this project began um, in the best possible way. It began with a gift, the gift of the painting that you see on the screen right now, Wind from the Sea from 1947. And it also began with what we thought initially was a simple question. When this painting arrived, the gift of Charles Hill Morgan, who was the founding director of the Mead Art Museum at Amherst College, um, we were hanging the painting, and one of our colleagues came by and asked, is that painting an anomaly? Is that a unique painting? And by that they meant there is no human being in the painting. Wyeth, of course, is best known for his painting um, Christina's World, Christina down in the foreground making her way back to her home on the horizon, and for many other images that include human beings. When that question was posed by our colleague, I did not know the answer. I don't think Charlie did either. So we started looking through the available books um, at reproductions, and it seemed that there were, in fact, quite a few images of windows without human beings. So we talked to the people at the Brandywine Museum, uh, the Wyeth curators there, and asked, what do you think? Are we making this up? Um, is this a pattern? Because by then we had noticed that images of windows without human beings occurred throughout Wyeth's career. He had a very long career, as you know. Um, he died in January of 2009 at age 91, this painting arrived at the museum by total coincidence in April of 2009, just a few months after he passed away. I think the folks at the Brandywine Museum were as surprised as we were to see how many images there were of windows uh, throughout the course of the career. 
So we kept exploring, and then finally I had a chance to speak to Nicholas Wyeth, one of Andrew Wyeth's two sons, and I asked him, are we making this up? He said, my father was fascinated by windows. And at that point, we decided, okay, um, let's delve into this more. And that's when this project began. And by the end of our research, we had um, found, and I'm sure there are more, we had found more than 300 images of windows without human beings throughout the course of Wise's career. It's perhaps easy to talk about images that don't have human beings in them with words, but it's far more, I think, dramatic to see what Wyeth was up to in these pictures without human beings. And in the exhibition, we have the painting that you see on the left called Off at Sea. But we learned through the course of our research that this picture began in a very different way. And what you see on the right is a watercolor study for the painting. And you see that initially there was a young boy sitting on this bench inside the vestry of a church in Maine. During the course of our project, we had access to hundreds of hours of recorded conversation with Wyeth. Two weeks from now, you will have the opportunity to hear Richard Merriman, who is Andrew Wyeth's biographer, speak about his long friendship with the artist. When we first began our project, I was reading the introduction to Richard's biography of Wyeth, and I noticed that he said his biography had been constructed from recorded conversations. And when I first met Richard over the phone, I asked him if he had saved those tapes, and he said, oh yes, I have them all. Well, it turned out that he had recorded conversations beginning in 1964 when he was an editor for Life magazine and went to visit Wyeth for an article that appeared the following spring. He recorded that conversation, and over time he became a very close friend of Wyeth and of the family, so that these recordings that took place over decades are conversations rather than interviews. How often have you said to yourself, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when that conversation was going on? Through Richard, Charlie and I had access to those conversations. Not only with Wyeth, but with his wife Betsy, with his family members, his sisters, with the subjects of his paintings. We heard Christina speak in a Maine accent so heavy that it took us several listenings to try and understand what she was saying. But in one of those conversations, we heard Wyeth talk about this painting. And he said what had happened was that he had made this initial watercolor on the right with his model with him, this young boy, and then he had gone back to the same spot to take additional sketches. And when he went back without the model, there was a single coat hanger hanging on the wall. You can see it in the upper left. And as he was working, he decided that the composition he preferred was the one without the boy. And so in this instance, he literally went back and sawed off the figure from the left part of the painting. He'd already begun the tempera for which this watercolor was a study. That sawed-off piece survives. The other piece is in our exhibition. And Charlie and I came to feel that this was perhaps the most um, dramatic example of what we were trying to do in the exhibition. 
Clearly, you all know Wyeth's name and have probably seen many Wyeth um, paintings in the past, know his work well. When the initial question came about wind from the sea, is this an anomaly, we thought, well, these paintings are very different if they don't have a human being in them. Any painting with a human being automatically has a human focus. You want to know who that person is. Why are they there? Why is she on the ground crawling toward that house? Why doesn't he have any shoes on? His tan is pretty peculiar. What's going on here? But if you take that human narrative, that personal narrative, out of the painting, then you get a very different kind of artist, I think. I came to believe that the human figures, often quite exotic in uh, Wyeth paintings, sort of ambushed the pictures. And if they were not there, your focus was entirely different and perhaps a different kind of artist emerged. Then, on the tapes, Charlie and I heard Wyeth say multiple times, I'm an abstract painter. They don't get it. Now, abstraction for most of us means Franz Klein or Jackson Pollock, and those pictures look very different from the ones by Wyeth. So we tried to understand what did he mean when he said abstract painter. And what we came to understand was that there is an abstract armature, there is a structure to these paintings that is, in fact, Abstract, in the sense that Wyeth has pared away everything that he feels is not essential to the painting. On the tapes, we heard him describe his process as boiling down, paring away, getting to the bone, subtraction. And that's what we saw over and over again when we were able to put studies next to finished paintings. That's why the exhibition includes many watercolors, and preliminary studies so that you can watch him think. And instead of the gifted copyist that many people describe Wyeth as in the past, you will see he was a very thoughtful, manipulative artist getting down to what he described as the bone or the essence of the painting. Just so you know, if you haven't been to the exhibition, how we've structured this, because it's not chronological. Chronology didn't tell us anything about these particular paintings. So instead, we have organized it in this manner. When you walk in, you will see wind from the sea in front of you. And on either side, you will see two studies so that you can watch Wyeth work through the initial subject. And then... Around the baffle, we call it, this room is devoted entirely to window images from the Olson House, which is where Wind from the Sea uh, began. The Olson House in Maine was one of his two primary landscapes. Then you move into a room where all the images are of the Kerner Farm, which is located not far from where Wyeth grew up in Chadsford, Pennsylvania. Again, both exterior and interior images. And then in this area, you will see images devoted entirely to his Brandywine studio. Wyeth worked alone, unless he had one of his dogs with him. He played classical music. He did not invite people into his studio. Even his wife needed to be asked to come into his studio. Um, That was a very private, creative space. So we have here 
you will see interior views of the studio here and then exterior views on this side and a great painting in the center, which I'll mention in a minute. And then in the last room, here's Off at Sea, which came for Charlie and me, I think, to become the sort of summary painting of our, of our project. But we also have in that room pairs of paintings that seemed to focus on a particular aesthetic or art uh, problem that Wyeth explored in depth, either through multiple images or through images of the same space over time. We heard him say that he was not interested in novelty. He was interested in, in seeing what happened to places that he knew very well over time, how time changed them. So, Wind from the Sea, this is the painting that began everything. And the story here, we heard from Wyeth, was that he was in the third floor bedroom of the Olson House in Maine in August of 1947. He had gone to paint a watercolor study of a dormer window. When the noonday sun got to be too warm and the room needed air, he walked to the other side of the room and opened a window that had not been opened in decades. And a breeze from the ocean lifted the curtains that have, oops, sorry, (laughs) that have um, birds crocheted on them. And the wind seemed to make those birds fly. Wyeth, um, again, in the tapes that we had the privilege of listening to, said over and over again that he was constantly alert, thanks to the teachings of his father, to the unexpected moment. And when that happened, he grabbed the nearest piece of paper and captured it as fast as he could. When he did that this time, he grabbed a piece of paper that had a sketch of Christina Olson's head, as you can see in the upper left. And he put the first sketch for Wind from the Sea right on top of that. And you can see that it's vertical. And then this watercolor study here, Um, We're not sure what the sequence was, but clearly very early on, he has the um, light coming through the window on the floor. You can see the pattern with the um, drapes coming in. And then as he's boiling down, as he's subtracting, thinking through the process, you'll see on the other side of the entry uh, room for the exhibition these two works where he has, um, you'll see he's cutting the um, composition in half, All of that um, information there on the floor about the light disappears. In the final painting, there is nothing below the windowsill. He's made a decision. He's zeroing in on the subject. Um, This is the painting that he was working on when he crossed to the other side of the room and opened the window and the, the drapes lifted. This is third floor bedroom. This has come to us from Japan. I would like to mention um, here that we are deeply indebted to a private collector in Japan for lending us 10 works. Um, We are able to bring together uh, finished works and their studies because of the kindness and generosity of that particular collector. I'd also like to mention that we're deeply indebted to the Wyeth family, especially, especially Mrs. Wyeth, who allowed us to include in this exhibition 11 paintings that have never been exhibited before. They're watercolors. Um, She picked them up off the floor of the studio. Wyeth, until late in his life, did not value preliminary works. He 
laid them around on the floor. The dog walked over them. We saw paw prints on these pictures. But she, um, much to the... (laughs) Art historians like me are eternally grateful to Mrs. Wyeth for going around, picking those up, and then putting them in the dark, saving the colors, so that we have, even for those of you who know Wyeth's work well... Uh, we have works you could not have seen before because they've never been exhibited before, thanks to Mrs. Wyeth. And that's one reason this exhibition will be seen only at the National Gallery. Um, she did not want to travel those works. As you know, light exposure for watercolors can do damage. She allowed us to have the exhibition here longer than we usually do. It'll be here through November 30th. But the reason is those wonderful watercolors that have not been seen before. Um, in the Olson room, you will see this stunning painting, Weather Side, of the Olson house. And on the wall text, uh, you will be able to read that we learned from the tapes again that for Wyeth, each one of these windows represented a different stage of Christina's life. One of the things that um, we were privileged to learn was that For Wyeth, these paintings are deeply embedded with personal history and personal meaning. And because he shared so much of this with Richard on these tapes, eventually this will all become um, known. And Richard is is giving these tapes to uh, the Andrew Wyeth Foundation, um, and they will eventually, once they're processed, become available to scholars and others who want to listen to them. But we heard him say over and over again that these paintings had personal meaning for him that others could not know. But first and foremost, they were compositions on a surface, as this is. So um, you'll hear him, well, we uh, included in the wall text his reference to this pink curtain in the window. That's Christina's bedroom when she was able to climb the stairs um, and get there. But by the time he met her, she was not able to do that. In the Kerner room, um, we have a suite of paintings of the Kerner farmhouse with one illuminated window. Uh, Carl Kerner was dying of cancer at a certain point in their relationship. Uh, Wyeth and Carl Kerner became good friends. And he would come, uh, Wyeth would come up over the hill from his own home and studio and see this light on in the room where Carl was at that point um, in bed. And he became fascinated by the single illuminated light. You will see these two pictures flanking that one. And when you get close to this one, you can't see it here, but you can on the real, on the real painting, there are sticks stuck in the paint and grass. Wyeth was clearly sitting on the hill above the Kerner house, making this watercolor sketch very rapidly, and sticks and grass and other um, natural fibers became incorporated in the paint, and you can actually see that. For him, this was just a color notation, took it back to the studio, probably used it to paint uh, Evening at Kerner's. In this room, we have put um, two of his most famous tempera paintings, uh, one called Groundhog Day, owned by the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And on either side, we have put preliminary sketches so you can see him subtract, see him eliminate. 
and these flank the painting. You'll see Anna Kerner sits in front of the window on the left with curtains, and here one of the German Shepherd dogs with the apples on the, on the sill, and here's the final painting. You can see there's not even a complete place setting here. Um, he has stripped away everything that he felt non-essential, um, no people, no dogs, no apples, just a knife, very simple-looking composition, but think of the geometry here. And I think that's what Charlie and I came to admire enormously as we worked on this project, that these pictures look like Wyeth just sat down in front of this scene and copied it because he had such extraordinary technical skills. But we know from putting the preliminary works next to the finished painting that was not what he was doing at all. Here is another one. This is called Spring Fed, and these are two studies. When you're in the exhibition, you might look carefully at this because he's inscribed all kinds of notes to himself, color, shape, um, form, and over here, the watercolor, and look what happens to the windows. There are two windows here. One window disappears completely, and then here's the final picture. The mullions are gone from that totally. Um, it looks like exactly what he must have seen, but it's not. It's highly manipulated. And um, the other thing we learned about Wyeth's work is that there is a subtext through most of these paintings that has to do with mortality and death. It was a constant theme. His father had died um, violently when his car stalled on the tracks of a train. In fact, standing in the pasture right out here, you can see the tracks where N.C. Wyeth, his famous illustrator father, was killed. I should mention at this point, too, wind from the sea, if you recall, looking out that window, Wyeth would have known that right at the, at the horizon there where the trees were was the Olson family cemetery. He had been um, canvassing that property for 10 years by the time he did uh, Wind from the Sea. He would have known it backwards and forwards. Looking out that window, he knew there was a cemetery out there, but there is nothing in that painting to tell you that. Today, you can stand and look out that same window because the Olson House is a natural, National Historic Site, and when you look out the window, what you see is Andrew Wyeth's gravestone. That is the first thing you see outside the window. Simple black stone, Andrew Wyeth with his life dates. That painting has come full circle in a very um, compelling way. Here, a painting that Charlie and I came to feel um, was one of the most complex in the whole exhibition. This is called Rod and Reel. And Wyeth, again, on the tapes that we listened to, talked about how this happened. He was standing on the porch of the Kerner farmhouse that you've just seen, and he was fascinated by the movement of the fir tree that is behind him against the glass. The boughs were moving all over. It was windy. And then he became intrigued by the reflective surface of the glass, which by definition is supposed to be transparent, but which, of course, is reflective. So that the complexity here is that here is the shadow of the porch. Here is another piece of shadow of the porch. 
This is the reflection of the landscape behind us, behind Wyeth, as he's standing on the porch. On the other side of the glass is this shade with a single red tie string here. Then you're looking through this glass to another window on the other side of the house. All of that in a painting that is also an incredible study of white. Um, The only color, as you can see, is in that reflected landscape or in the rod and reel in the foreground. Everything else is a wonderful shade of white. White was Wyeth's favorite color. January and February were his favorite months um, in Pennsylvania. He liked the earth skeletal, as he said. No leaves, no trees with beautiful flowers. He wanted to see the skeleton, the structure. Here, another painting in the Kerner room. Um, This one, again, there's a figure painted out here. This is Carl Kerner, the ghost of Carl Kerner, when Wyeth became interested in this small window on the third floor of the Kerner home. And you'll see when you see this in the exhibition that he got really aggressive with this paper. It's torn, it's um, folded, changed his mind, painted out that figure. But for us, for Charlie and me, I think it became emblematic of how all of these paintings are haunted for Wyeth by personal memory, personal meaning. Only occasionally do we know what that is. The studio room, this is the image of the studio. Um, It was a schoolhouse at one time. It was owned by N.C. Wyeth when Betsy and Andrew moved there as newlyweds. Um, It was owned by his father. That's where they lived and raised their two boys until they acquired another property in the area that was uh, Revolutionary War era, and this became his studio. Whoops. Two interior views that I mentioned are on one side of the room, um, the beautiful uh, frostbitten there with the apples on the, on the sill, and then these tiny soldiers. Um, the studio is now open. You can visit the studio. You will see when you go there that there's a huge wall of soldiers, toy soldiers. Um, his mother began buying those soldiers at Wanamaker's in Philadelphia for him when he was just a boy, and he continued to collect them um, as an adult, and there's a massive display of them in the studio space. Here on the other side of the room are um, images of the shutters on the outside. Um, the window for Wyeth served as it had artists for centuries as an eye. So here again, pre- um, playing with reflection and eye closed open, all kinds of metaphors that became important to him. And in this image called the Quaker, um, you've got this amazing grid of verticals and horizontals in the painting. And then, of course, the very soft folds of two costumes, the one on the left, a Quaker garment, the one on the right he described as a fops coat. Um, The juxtaposition of soft folds and this rigid geometric structure of windows, fireplace, floor, and, of course, the light coming in. 
In the final room, we have pairings like this, where this is an abandoned home in Maine. Uh, The story is that when the last tenant died, the family that owned it didn't want to live there anymore. They just left it open, put the key in the door, left it fully furnished, and, of course, that became a wonderful subject for Wyatt. So this is an upstairs bedroom in an abandoned home, and you can see here this motif he explores close up shade, mirror, shade, open window. He's playing again with light coming through open space, through closed space, underneath shades, through cracks, all kinds of um, difficult problems if you're a technician, if you're an artist, but also wonderful composition um, elements. Here, um, cellar fireplace, this picture has come to us from Oklahoma City, and one of the most dramatic Contrast between light coming through a window at the left and the deep darkness of the um, fireplace, the cellar. That's the kind of thing an artist is fascinated by, um, light and dark with a recognizable subject. Here also, McVeigh's barn. This um, painting, I might mention that we have uh, reframed more than 50% of the works in the exhibition. Uh, We learned early on that Wyeth preferred very spare, elegant frames that didn't draw any attention to themselves, just disappeared so that the works themselves would be the center of attention. This picture um, had a French frame on it, if you can imagine. All kinds of frou-frou all around it, clamshells in the corners. Um, Fortunately, the museum... Uh, when we spoke with them about this, understood that that was a dealer's frame, not Wyeth's choice, so they allowed us to reframe it. And I think now, if if we did everything right, you won't pay any attention to the frame. The picture will just pop out, and you'll see this extraordinary light down here on the grass. Uh, This is a tempera, each blade of grass done with a single stroke. Wonderful picture. Uh, Two images of N.C. Wyeth's um, studio on the left, Uh, and the interior of the big room, the house where um, young Andrew Wyeth played with his toy soldiers on the floor. And finally, um, off at sea, where, uh, again, this beautiful geometric composition, but off at sea, we learned, if you have true main roots, is a euphemism for lost at sea. The single coat hanger up there in the corner empty, no garment. It's the one curved element in the painting. Um, We hope that you'll look at these paintings with fresh eyes at the geometric structure that's in them. Uh, Wyeth, a terrific technician and perhaps a different artist than we initially thought um, years ago. He did say, I may have mentioned already, that he did not expect to be understood in his lifetime. When I heard him say that, I thought it was rather sad, but then I understood that it gave him tremendous freedom. If you don't expect to be understood in your lifetime, go your own course, which is exactly what he did. Of course, he lived long enough to enjoy the popular acclaim for his work, but I think um, we've maybe turned a corner now, and we're looking at his paintings in a in a different way that um, grants him uh, far more credit than he was given years ago. Now I'm going to um, hand the podium over to Charlie Brock. 
When we began this project, we decided that since neither of us had met Wyeth, we never had that privilege, that we would investigate this subject from two very different ways. I wanted to learn as much as I could about wind from the sea and see where it took me. And Charlie wanted to see where Wyeth fit in the broader issue of modernism, since he was often held up as a scapegoat for the anti-modern, when in fact we believe he was part of the modernist movement. So Charlie will talk to you about his research in that regard. I think uh, Nancy's lecture looks inside out and mine looks outside in, so in a way they, they, they echo the show. Um, let me begin by thanking Nancy Anderson for making me part of her remarkable vision for Andrew Wyeth looking out, looking in. Uh, today I'd like to uh, try to get a little beyond what in the past has been a rather contentious and often tedious debate, namely whether Andrew Wyeth can be legitimately considered a modernist. Instead, I want to focus on the more substantive question of exactly what type of modernist he was and to take a closer look at how his repeated claims of being an abstract painter hold up. Although Wyeth's winter fields have been included in the Museum of Modern Art's 1943 survey, American Realist and Magic Realist, and his most famous painting, Christina's World, was purchased by MoMA in 1949, shortly after it was made, Moving past mid-century, his reputation became embroiled in the ongoing battle being waged between champions of abstraction and proponents of realism, a battle that tended to presume that the positions of the two sides were mutually exclusive. This polarizing debate, while it undoubtedly sharpened and illuminated important distinctions between the two modes, necessarily minimized and subordinated their many connections and relationships, at times literally blinding observers to the rich meshing of abstraction and realism that informed the works of contemporary artists on either side of what was in many ways an imaginary divide. Closer scrutiny of the major artists initially enlisted in these causes inevitably revealed how elusive and complicated their positions and artistic identities really were around 1915. Willem de Kooning, for instance, resisted the critical dictates of the most compelling backer of abstraction, Clement Greenberg, taking inspiration from a bewildering variety of sources, from Peter Paul Rubens to Norman Rockwell. De Kooning had a ravenous visual appetite and believed that in, that in, quote, art, one idea is as good as another, protesting that order to me is to be ordered about, and that is a limitation, and noting simply, as Picasso had, that, quote, even abstract, abstract shapes must have a likeness. Philip Guston's personal break from the orthodoxies of abstraction took place around 1970, when his style shifted from a lyrical abstraction to a wildly transgressive cartoon figuration. Guston's shift made clear what to a large degree had always been true. All avenues were open to contemporary artists. As early as 1960, Guston had observed, there is something ridiculous and miserly in the myth we inherit from abstract art, that painting is autonomous, pure and for itself, and therefore we habitually analyze its ingredients and define its limits. But painting is impure. It is the, the adjustment of impurities which forces painting's continuity. We are image makers and image ridden. There are no wiggly or straight lines or any other elements. You work until you vanish. The ensuing eclecticism of the last quarter of the 20th century was dubbed postmodernism by some, but it could alternately be understood as a return to modernism's eclectic ecumenical roots, 
the all-inclusive, radically democratic spirit that, for instance, had found one of its fullest, fullest expressions in the 19, 1913 Armory Show in New York. Following Wyeth's death in 2009, the Wyeth scholar and curator of American art at the Philadelphia Museum, Kathleen Foster, commented on Wyeth's status as a modernist. I think the debate is over, and the more distant we get from the hubbub, the less interesting it seems. I think we are now all grown up enough to realize there are many roads to modern art and not just one channel. Wyeth himself was certainly not a simple doctrinaire proponent of realism. He was surprisingly skeptical about the status of contemporary representational art, and his own position regarding abstraction and realism was quite nuanced. In 1953, in response to the promoters of abstract expressionism, such as Greenberg, who were challenging the validity of representational painting and contemporary art in the 50s, Edward Hopper and others began publishing the magazine Reality as a sounding board for their views. When Hopper asked Wyeth to support the magazine, he tellingly deferred. Quote, Abstract art is the toughest neighbor realism has had to put up with for years. Could it be that realism has become paunchy from centuries of easy living? Wyeth admired the work of Franz Klein and accepted the challenge that abstract, art, abstract painting posed. He was highly skeptical of the value of his own work, and more acutely perhaps than his older colleague Hopper, felt how precarious the position of realist painting had become. Near the end of, near the end of his life, Wyeth commented, Sometimes it comes off, most of the time it doesn't. I may be completely forgotten. Probably one or two pictures might hang on, may live. If I had another hundred years, I couldn't get what I want. So I'm not satisfied with what I've done in any way. It's not false modesty. It's just that I know what's there beneath the surface. In devoting over 300 works to the window, from which Nancy Anderson has so skillfully selected the current exhibition of 60 objects, Wyeth was self-consciously and knowingly exploring a motif that spans a wide visual spectrum from Renaissance realism to the pure abstractions of the 20th century. Renaissance treatises on perspective explored the notion of the surface of a painting as a pane of glass onto which reality could be mapped, a practice famously illustrated in this image by the German Renaissance master Albrecht Dürer. Early in the 20th century, at the other end of this historical continuum, the Renaissance window became the abstract modernist grid, epitomized by the revolutionary works of Malevich and Mondrian. As art sought to define itself solely on its own terms apart from any objective outer reality, grids emerged, as the highly influential critic and theorist of modern art Rosalind Krauss has forcefully argued, as the key emblems of modernity. Studying the relationship of Wyeth's window images to both the traditions of realism and the innovations of modernist abstraction enables his place in the history of art and more specifically in the history of 20th century modernism to be clarified. Krauss saw the modernist grid as arising from the use of windows by symbolist artists in the late 19th century, like the Danish painter Wilhelm Hammershoi. Quote, the grid appears in symbolist art in the form of windows, the material presence of their panes expressed by the geometri geometrical intervention of the window's mullions. The symbolist interest in windows clear clearly reaches back into the early 19th century and Romanticism. But in the hands of the symbolist painters and poets, this image is turned in an explicitly modernist direction, for the window is experienced as simultaneously transparent and abstract, 
As a transparent vehicle, the window is that which admits light or spirit into the initial darkness of the room. Yet if glass transmits, it also reflects. And so the window is experienced by the symbolist as a mirror as well, something that freezes and locks the self into place, into the space of its own reduplicated or mirrored being. Krauss characterizes the pure modernist grid as, quote, flattened, geometricized, ordered. It is anti-natural, anti-mimetic, anti-real. It is what art looks like when it turns its back on nature. The grid for Krauss states, quote, states the absolute autonomy of the realm of art and declares the space of art to be at once autonomous and autotelic, that is, having a purpose in and not apart from itself. Grids explicitly reject a narrative or sequential reading of any kind. They don't tell stories. They are a paradigm or model for the anti-developmental, the anti-narrative, the anti-historical, where we are specifically enjoined from thinking in terms of development, and instead we speak of repetition. While the grid presents while the grid system presents the possibility of endless variations, it is simply it is simultaneously a closed game. Wyeth never created an, an absolutely pure abstraction, but both his life and art, as expressed through his window images, were delimited and enclosed in ways analogous to the closed system of the modernist grid. Wyeth traced his fascination with windows and empty interiors to his early experience of being alone and bedridden in his room as a sickly youth. Wyeth's biographer Richard Merriman observed, quote, Andrew's lack of broad exposure to children outside the family, his geographic self-confinement, his lack of reading skills were a kind of quarantine. Wyeth recalled, I was perfectly happy in my own little world. Few, if any, major painters in the 20th century have lived and worked as intensively in the places they grew up in, in as Wyeth did in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, and Cushing, Maine. Merriman writes, The spine of Wyeth's Pennsylvania life has been the walk he has taken thousands of times, always the same during the boyhood flights from his father's eye, during the first years of marriage, then during the 1950s, during all his life. Wyeth late in life described his talent as seeing a lot in nothing. And the self-enclosed environment of what what has often been called Wyeth world was, like Malevich's radical early black square paintings, essentially a a rigorously devised abstraction of Wyeth's own making. Wyeth literally turned the rooms of the Kerner and Olson houses into studio spaces, inhabiting, transforming, and shaping these structures in ways that mirrored his own vision of reality. His style changed little over the course of his career, and Wyeth's endless repetitions and variations on the window theme and lack of clear stylistic development further mark him as a modernist. Wyeth's interest in abstraction was also evident in his portrait practice, where isolated, stranded figures stare into empty space and float suspended in time. Wyeth may have deeply admired his sitters, but he was also wary about how they complicated his own identity. He distinguished his portraiture from his son Jamie Wyeth by stating that, Jamie is very interested in the person. I am understandably interested in the person, but unrelated. Continuing that, the only thing I have against sometimes doing portraits is that the person is there. (laughs) Merriman noted how Wyeth Wyeth strove to, quote, detach himself from the work, at the same time recognizing they are all portraits of himself and the paradox of struggling to detach himself, get himself out of these things. 
Wyeth expressed ambivalence about the role, his role as portraitist. I don't like the being of me particularly. I thought I'd write behind Ralph Klein's portrait, portrait of Andrew Wyeth, painted by himself. I'd love it to go down as a portrait of me and the hell with me, really. He prized the eerie, disconnected quality of Christina's world, stating that people may understand that I'm dead. Sometimes I'm floating above looking down. I'm disembodied almost. I've disappeared. In my best work, there's a strange detachment. Wyeth sought to incorporate this effacement of the painted subject and the self-effacement of the painter into the very facture of his temperas. Quote, I mean, the more I get into a picture, the less emotion there is. The method is obliterated. I wish I could obliterate brushstrokes. It's always been my urge if I could eliminate the fact that it was done by human hands. I think the greater you are, the more you do obliterate yourself. Finally, Wyeth offered, I think the deeper you get, the more detached you are. And I believe in the absolute nothingness of my own personality. Wyeth's interest in seeing a lot in nothing and confronting the voids and isolation of modern experience was clearly indebted to Winslow Homer and Edward Hopper. His figures, although true portraits rather than general types, similarly stare lost in thought into outer spaces, outer spaces which mirror interior enclosed unconscious states of mind. Like windows, these figures are simultaneously looking out and looking in. They are personifications of the literal windows that often enframe them. Wyeth ultimately came to believe that his urge to create an art that could somehow articul articulate the dualities and paradoxes of his experience was constrained by his portrait practice, concluding that, quote, most of my portraits would have been better if I had removed the figures, unquote. Interiors and exteriors without figures and mediated by windows alone proved to be a more effective vehicle for expressing the strange mixture of realism and abstraction, presence and absence, connection and disconnection, intimacy and alienation that Wyeth sought. Over time, Wyeth, like Hopper, submerged himself more and more intensely in an ever-deepening process of simplification, reduction, and abstraction. Wyeth told Merriman, I often eliminate things, you know. I don't just go down to the studio and paint a vacuum. As with Hopper, there are several documented instances where Wyeth literally painted over and took out figures from his paintings. In discussing Groundhog Day, he noted how, quote, a lost presence makes the environment timeless to me, keeps an area alive. It pulsates because of that. Upon Hopper's death in 1967, Wyeth hearkened back to Hopper's son in an empty room. I've been so moved today on hearing of Hopper's death. He never lost the large grasp, never got mixed up in a lot of picayune theories that don't mean anything, stripped everything away till there was nothing, till you are filling nothingness with emotion. He ended up painting a corner of a vacant room and a patch of sun, the whole world in a shaft of light. Interiors and exteriors devoid of humanity while something of an anomaly in Hopper's work were central to the work of an artist who Wyeth rarely mentioned and at times disparaged, his fellow Pennsylvanian, Charles Sheeler. Reflecting the highly impersonal quality of his art and persona, Sheeler is the often unacknowledged presence behind Wyeth's window images. His series devoted to a Quaker, Quaker Fieldstone house in the Doylestown area and the barns of Lancaster County are in fact the most salient precedents for Wyeth's exploration of the rural architecture of Chad's Ford and Cushing and specific sites like the Kerner and Olson houses. 
The elimination of the figure by both artists allowed them to explore more, t- more timeless abstract dimensions, with the personal giving way to the numinous and supernatural. There are numerous parallels between individual works that span the two artists' career. To highlight just a few of these, Sheeler's Conte crayon drawing the open door relates directly to Wyeth's cooling shed. The snow-filled view in Sheeler's winter, winter window is a precursor to the looming presence of the sea found in Wyeth's herb room. And Wyeth's Lenape barn is a study in whites that recalls Sheeler's abstract photograph of 1915, side of white barn. More generally, the impetus to remove evidence of the artist's hand, which informs Wyeth's meticulous tempera paintings, is also characteristic of the methodical painstaking, painstaking technique of Sheeler's Conte crayon drawings and oils. Both artists were objective precisionists in a way that Hopper never was. Wyeth constantly considered and reconsidered how windows could reconcile the shallow and deep spaces of interiors and exteriors, and examined the ways in which they facilitated a range of other subtle and complex relationships among the various parts of his compositions. Lone windows are often juxtaposed to an array of other elements. Vertical doors and horizontal beds that amplify the rectilinear structure of Wyeth's compositions. Or, or objects hanging suspended from the, ce- from the ceiling in almost surreal fashion with their organic shapes part of a disorienting overall zigzag pattern set amidst the sharp right angles of the window grid. Other works create a counterpoint between two windows, one open and the other shaded. Looking into buildings, Wyeth, Wyeth absorbed in the commonplace, often presented the paradoxical experience of seeing the outdoors reflected in its window panes. Similarly, he observed the curious way that small landscapes of earth and grass sprang up within the dark interiors of spring houses and barns, blurring the borders of what was enclosed and what was unbounded. Looking inside out, the geometric rigor imposed by the window grid was intensified in views where an interior window reframed and subdivided a window in an outer room. Looking outside in, Wyeth removed himself further into the landscape, creating distant views of entire buildings with a single window aglow in the darkening gloom like the catchlight of an eye. Wyeth's vision was a double vision. The scope of his explorations of the window encompassed both the solipsism and outward projection of inner emotions found in Hopper's paintings, as well as the self-effacement and the objective distancing from self that were so characteristic of Scheler's enterprise. In addition to inviting us to take another look at Wyeth, looking out, looking in presents us with a further opportunity to more broadly reconsider the relationship between modern representational art and 20th century abstraction. We might begin to ask, for instance, if it is really that far a leap from the love of popular culture and the energetic, active, expressive expressive brushwork that animate a painting like George Bellows' New York to the energies that suffuse a mid-century icon of abstract expressionism like de Kooning's excavation. Or we might be encouraged to hazard a guess as to how the nocturnal small-town music-making of Norman Rockwell's Shuffleton's Barbershop can be be related to Mondrian's exuberant celebration of popular urban American rhythms, Broadway boogie-woogie. Or returning to Wyeth, we might search for visual and conceptual bridges between Christina's world and Wyeth's snow flurries, and from snow flurries to Jackson Pollock's lavender mist. Do these works inhabit opposite ends of the modernist spectrum, or do they reside next to each other at the razor's edge between representation and abstraction? 
Certainly thinking about such questions compels us to think twice and look twice. And in doing so, we might begin to better understand how modernist abstraction and representation have both struggled with what Krauss has called the, quote, absolute rift in the modern world between the sacred and the secular, unquote, and how their vestigial spirituality and recognition of emptiness, loss, and chaos are in many ways manifestations of the same existential dilemma. To conclude, neither Wyeth nor Scheler nor Hopper saw modern representational art as a panacea for the ills of contemporary life. To the contrary, they were all aware of modernism's tragic dimensions. Scheler, speaking of his efforts to erase any signs of human touch in his drawings and oil paintings, remarked that an efficient army buries its dead. Hopper saw himself as, quote, unquote, not very human in desiring an art free of a human presence. Wyeth sensed how his own efforts to sustain representation were nearly played out. Quote, I'm not going, I'm going to put an end to this type of painting. I've finished it off. Their art, like Samuel Beckett's novel Malloy and his plays Waiting for Godot and Endgame, while not without animations of spirituality and enlightenment, was an exercise in using cultural remnants to struggle with the inscrutable dilemmas and realities of a modern world bereft of philosophical, scientific, or religious certainties. All three men worked within the narrow scope of subject matter with limited means, returning again and again to interiors and exteriors of buildings in fairly consistent architectonic styles. They all used the window to frame and register the unseen personal, social, and cultural voids of modern life. Wyeth created a large body of figurative work indebted to the emotionally driven art of Hopper, as well as hundreds of works devoid of people that resonate with Scheler's more intellectually distanced approach that is both intensely personal as well as coldly detached. Collectively, Scheler, Hopper, and Wyeth matched the existential realities of modern America as they played out across its technological, urban, and rural landscapes. Their art in which the figure either was explicitly present displaced by a machine, or implied by its absence, constituted a remarkable disappearing act, performed inside and outside empty rooms, back and forth across the threshold of a window. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.